Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Sidebar with Cindy. Every Monday to Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. So this evening, between now and 8 p.m., we are going to be chatting about um, conception, um, safer conception and HIV. So I am privileged to be joined in studio by um, Dr. Natasha Davies. She's a colleague and a friend, and she's very passionate about this topic. So if I can just set the scene. So there was a time in our past where if you were diagnosed with HIV and you were, you were, you were a woman, you were told that you could not have kids, right? And... You know, that, that, that is it. That is your, that is it. You can't have kids. We, would, we don't advise you to have kids because you're going to give birth to positive babies and, um, and, or you might die and who's going to bring up your kids. There'll be all these orphans running around the earth. And this is the kind of stuff that women were told if they express a desire to have kids after being di- diagnosed HIV positive. And even darker part of that past is that some doctors took it upon themselves to sterilize women without letting them know and they they felt they were doing them a favor because you know you're positive and you can't have kids and fast forward to 2019 and we are now living in the era of 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 you equals you undetectable equals untransmittable and what we're saying is that if you're hiv positive and you're on treatment and you're taking your treatment properly, you can have kids and you can have as many kids as you want to. So I'm so glad to have Natasha in studio with me. Um, she's a medical doctor. She's, a, she's an HIV clinician and she's very good at what she does. And her specific focus of work for the past few years has been around safer conception. And we're going to go into depth in that during the show. But what I'm really looking forward to the most is taking your calls. So I enjoy bringing my friends into studio so that we can share information with you, life-changing information. So start calling us on 86 00959 Please send your SMSs to 36959. And you can hashtag on Twitter, sidebar Cindy, KFM Talk. Let us get as many questions as we can. And remember, there's no stupid question. Whatever you ask, we have an answer. We're here to share information. So before I get carried away, Hi, Natasha, and thank you so much for being here. Hi, Cindy, and thanks for inviting me. So I first met you um, in 2006 at Chris Honey Baragwanath um, Hospital. And I remember I was an intern, a very cheeky intern, and you were a medical officer. Yeah. And you just come from where? Uh, I'd been in KZN, and before that I'd grown up and studied in Scotland. And what made you, what made you decide to become a medical doctor? Um... It's hard to remember. It was quite a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, basically, I was a smart kid and I had uh, two doctor parents. So I guess they... Uh, oh, so they influenced. Pre, predestined. <laughs> they influenced you. And then your decision to, 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 to move to South Africa and, and work in the field of HIV, with, with, you know, what, what informed that decision? Uh, so when I was a medical student in Scotland, we had an opportunity to start to travel for one module uh, called an elective and I ended up in rural KZN up near um, Lake Lucia, Lake St. Lucia and was exposed to a very different form of medicine uh, which I fell in love with. It was rural and harsh and it was right in the depths of the HIV epidemic before ARVs were available Mm. in South Africa. Uh, So after I qualified I came back for a year uh, 
well, it was supposed to be a year. And, and here I'm, you are. I'm still here 15 years later. Yeah. So. And, and the work that you do, Natasha, Dr. Natasha Davies, is, is really phenomenal. And I know that. So we, you know, our, our paths crossed in 2006 and our paths carried on crossing with the work that I did at the, at the HIV NGO that I worked at in Soweto. And your passion has always been around the prevention of mother-to-child transmission. Yeah, and and also just helping. I think I see HIV as a family illness. So it's about helping everyone in the family to live positively if someone is affected by HIV. So that includes partners. It, my focus has also shifted towards how to involve men more um, go, as we move forward because men are often overlooked and uh, trying to help people to have an HIV-free generation. Yeah, and then, then the overlooking of men. Um, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Sidebar Cindy, and I'm chatting to Dr. Natasha Davies, and we're speaking about HIV and safer conception. The overlooking of men is something that I still feel we haven't, we haven't tapped into. We ha- there's a word for this, Natasha. We haven't done enough to get more men into the system. I mean, women are easily into the system because you know we we presented hospitals for a variety of things, and there's a there's a higher opportunity for us to test for HIV, but with guys not so much. And what can we do? Yeah, it's it's an ongoing question. I'm not sure what we can do because we continue to see that men have poorer outcomes. So they test less, they start treatment less, they stay on treatment less. And unfortunately, they die of age-related conditions more. And it's a a really significant gap. Um, And one thing that I've learned through the Safer Conception Services is that men care about their families and they are interested in having kids. And one way that we can possibly encourage them to get engaged in care is by by tapping into that interest and helping them by saying, hey, if you don't know your HIV status, then you can't make informed decisions about your the approach to building your family. Mm. But if you uh, can know your status, then we can advise you either way, if you're negative, how to stay negative and healthy. And if you are living with HIV, how to do that in a healthy way so that you can have a healthy family. So it's one area that I'm particularly interested in is how to bring sexual and reproductive health, so family health and HIV together in a way that interests men and gets them involved. And obviously the most important thing is for us to get tested. Yeah. And so what do you think are some of the barriers, um, you know, around testing? Why do, why are people still reluctant to go and test? I think it's just deeply ingrained in the South African psyche that HIV is something to be blamed for and that there's a stigma associated with it. So people are nervous to be labelled with that diagnosis of having HIV and, and I don't think that those of us in the know have done enough to to get the community aware of the fact that HIV is now a chronic illness that is completely controllable and many doctors now say if they were to choose between having HIV and diabetes or hypertension they would actually choose HIV because the management is much easier, the side effects are less and the life expectancy and your quality of life is better if you are on treatment for HIV than perhaps if you're living with diabetes or high blood pressure and and you have issues in terms of control controlling that illness. So I think there's still so much fear around HIV, but it's lagging more than a decade behind the evidence in terms of what it means to live with HIV. Mm. And that's something that we, we know we have to work hard at um, all the time to make sure that people, you know, people get the, the, the right information. So, so zooming 
deeper into the prevention of mother to child transmission. I mean, you are one of the doctors that's been at the forefront of the guidelines, you know, making sure that guidelines keep up to date with the guidelines from overseas. And um, just just talk us through the changes, Natasha, from, from when you started and up to now, how have the guidelines evolved, the, the prevention of mother to child transmission of HIV guidelines? I mean, it's it's been probably the most rapid evolution in medical history yeah. in terms of what is achievable. So, like I said, I came over here and was exposed to HIV before treatment was available. And I was actually working in that complex of hospitals where they fought for single-dose nevirapine for the first time. And some of the doctors got sacked for uh, providing single-dose nevirapine when it wasn't part of the guidelines. So, we didn't provide women with any tools at all. Uh, even 15, 20 years ago, there was nothing available for women living with HIV. So it was guaranteed that at least 30% of their babies would be born with HIV and there was nothing that they could do about it. And a lot of those babies are still alive now. They, they, they're yeah. entering their teens and those are the kids that I see who are now being told that, listen, that medication you've been taking for all these years that's for asthma, it's actually for HIV. Yeah, so so we are, we are now seeing that generation who were infected by their mums through absolutely no fault of their mothers yeah. at all. They're now growing up and starting to deal with the issues of stigma themselves. And I actually um, um, head of a, of a high-risk PMTCT clinic, so Prevention of Mother-to-Child Transmission Clinic at Charlotte-Matreke Hospital. And we're seeing perinatally infected women, so women who were born with okay. HIV, now pregnant with their own babies and it's it's an awesome experience because they're healthy and they're well but they're very scared because they've they were born with HIV yeah. so they expect their babies to be born with HIV and one thing that I can do is reassure them and say no now there's triple therapy you get three drugs in one tablet that you take once a night and your baby has a 99.9% chance of being HIV free and for them, that is mind-boggling because their story was so different. So, so different. And they'll, and they'll have to live with that story, you know, for the rest of their lives. And in, in, and in terms of, of the, the amount of medication that was taken before then, I mean, so when I started working with PMTT, you taking medication twice a day. Mm-hmm. And um, then, it, it, then it changed to three tablets once, you know, once a day. And then, you know, now we're just getting better and better. Um, what has been your experience with that? How has been the, you know, the reception of these changes from the patients? Yeah, so, so the reception is really positive. I think one thing I struggle with is some of the women who come back who have had children throughout the different eras because yeah. women sometimes have three or four kids and they've experienced the different stages of the program and what was available. So their first child passed away from HIV because they didn't get anything. The next child came out okay because they got single-dose nevirapine. The next child, they were told, take the ARVs during your pregnancy, but you're well, so we'll take your ARVs away from you as soon as you give birth. Now this child, we're saying, no, no, you need to be on ARVs for life. It doesn't matter what your CD4 count is. And for many women, that's incredibly confusing. Like, why have the guidelines changed And those so are the hardest patients to keep on treatment. Yeah, because we told them before, no, we base everything on your CD4 count. How strong is your immune system? And now we've learned that that was actually a terrible mistake. And research has shown us that it doesn't matter what your immune system is doing. If you have HIV, you need treatment. 
treatment and you need to keep on taking it. So now we're in this position of needing to persuade people you shouldn't be sick before you start treatment. We don't want you to you, be sick before yeah. you start treatment. Yeah. And I think that's coming back to the the issue of men. It's one of the one of the reasons why men don't engage is that there's still this message in the community that if you're well you don't need treatment yeah. yet but that's it's it's backwards you know? yeah because from september 2016 the policies changed and basically it's it's we're following utt universal test and treat if you're hiv positive we want you in treatment and want you, want you to stay on treatment to lower your your viral load which is the amount of hiv in your blood so we're taking your calls on 086-0000959 you can sms us on 36959 and you can chat to us on 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 twitter um sidebar cindy's the hashtag and the other hashtag is KFM talk. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about the pregnancy, like antenatal booking. So I tried to get the message out that as soon as you find out that you're pregnant, you need to go and book at your clinic or at your doctor or wherever. So let's let's talk about that mm-hmm. and the importance of that, Natasha. Yeah, so I mean, I was listening to another show earlier today and there was an obstetrician on who was also saying the same thing, that in South Africa, there's quite different patterns of behavior between people who use the private sector and people who use the government sector. And unfortunately, in the government sector, it's not always a positive experience to go to an antenatal clinic and to book. The clinic is very full, the nurses are overworked, um, and they have a certain number of spaces to see patients per day. So it can be very frustrating if you try and book early and the nurses say no but there are other patients who need to be seen today because they've come late so therefore we're going to turn you away and you mm. need to come back and on another day. And they shouldn't do that. They actually shouldn't do that but yeah. No, there sh- in antenatal clinics there should ideally be no turnaways but overall the message is that women should engage in their pregnancy care as soon as they know that they are Um, pregnant and for HIV positive women that's particularly important because one of the first things that we do when we find out that you're pregnant is to check the viral load because if your viral load is undetectable and you keep it undetectable throughout the whole of your pregnancy then you have a zero chance of transmitting to your baby just like u equals u is true for partners undetectable is untransmissible we believe that u equals u is true for pregnancy as well but with the caveat that the woman needs to be undetectable from before she conceives all the way through pregnancy and if she chooses to breastfeed all the way through breastfeeding so if there's any issue of missing doses or your viral load popping up around any of that time then we can't you equals you Mm. but if you plan your pregnancy you know you're living with HIV you're on ARVs you check your viral load is undetectable and then you get pregnant on purpose fully aware and trying and planning and then you get pregnant and you book early your chances of having an HIV free baby are are 100%. And the important thing as well is to remember that if if you are HIV negative, what we then do is that we test you every three months. So this is something that's that's important for everyone to know. So we will test you every three months up until you stop breastfeeding. Why? Because you could still get infected during that period. Mm -hmm. And I I think the the few times I've seen um, babies that are born with HIV, a lot of the cases, the, the, the cases have been an infection that happened 
you know, mom had tested negative and then later on tested positive, but no one had repeated the test. And then she then transmitted the virus to her to her baby. Yeah, so I think that is now becoming one of the most common reasons that we see infected babies, unfortunately. So between about 3 and 5% of women who start their pregnancy journey HIV negative in South Africa will become positive during their pregnancy or during breastfeeding. So that's another reason why I'm passionate about engaging men in this journey, because if you've got a negative lady and she has a partner whose status is unknown or a positive partner who's not on treatment, she's at risk of becoming positive herself and, and then, then passing it on to baby. So it's really important for HIV uninfected women to make sure that their partners test so that if they happen to be positive, we can get them on treatment and it keeps them healthy, which is obviously the primary goal. But the secondary benefit is that the mum-to-be doesn't get infected mm-hmm. and the baby stays HIV-free. So it is a family disease and it needs to be treated as such. But I think one of the problems in the antenatal clinics is that they are so focused on the women who are living with HIV that the HIV-negative women who are at risk get forgotten. And they fall through the cracks. And we miss them, yeah. Yeah, we do. So we're taking calls. We have Dr. Nora Maitisa calling us from Centurion. Good evening, Nora, and thank you for calling. Good evening, Dr. Cindy. Uh, good evening, Natasha. Um, you know, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, listening to this actually just take uh, take me back to where we began. Yeah. Uh, I think the three of us are probably one of the few medical officers who were involved in the early rollout years of antiretroviral uh, therapy in South Africa. And we unfortunately witnessed, um, you know, what lack of antiretrovirals um, could do to a nation. But also we have observed and witnessed what ARVs can actually do to patients. Mm. And when I look back, actually, uh, to think that we moved from mother-to-child transmission of about 25% to mother-to-child transmission of below 2%, uh, if if, if the stat is still saying 2% uh, currently, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, just testament to the fact that ARVs can save lives, actually do save lives. Um, And it's thanks to doctors like, you know, HIV clinicians like uh, Natasha, um, uh, you know, and the rest of them really, HIV clinicians who are actually passionate about uh, preventing mother-to-child transmission, preventing death in patients and making sure that HIV patients are taken care of. And for me, it's just to say thank you and continue the good work that you're doing because you are really saving lives. Well, no, thank you to you. Thanks to you too, Nora, because when we were part of the team that then had to go and train nurses um, on how to, to roll out HIV treatment. And if the nurses hadn't gotten on board, I don't think we'd have made the, the strides that we have made. So it's, it's, it's the, yes, the HIV clinicians, but also the nurse clinicians who are willing to learn this new thing to make sure that many lives are saved. So yeah, thank you for that, Nora. Thanks for that call. Absolutely, thank yeah, you. Thanks. So, so okay. So coming back to 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 the transmission of of, of HIV, Natasha. So I got a message, um, and someone wants to know, um, what happens if the male is positive and the female is negative? How do you ensure that the baby is born um, HIV free and that the the mom stays HIV negative? Okay, so where the man is positive and the lady is negative, Mm. the first step would be to make sure that the male partner is on ARVs 
and that his viral load is undetectable. And now with the wealth of evidence behind the U equals U messaging, that is actually all that couple would need. If they feel confident enough that the man is going to take his treatment every day and that he's going to the clinic regularly and that he's had his viral load checked. Now, at the government clinics, they only check the viral load once a year. So my recommendation to couples who are planning a pregnancy is to ask the clinic to do an extra viral load if they're about to embark on trying to get pregnant together, just to make sure that before they start, the man is truly undetectable. And that should be acceptable to any healthcare provider. It's a good reason to check the viral load. And then when the couple go in together to talk about planning the pregnancy, I would also recommend that they check for other STIs because that can increase your risk of transmission HIV. And it can also create problems in terms of trying to get pregnant because STIs can be associated with infertility, particularly for women. So you want to make sure that both of the partners are STI free from other points of view. Now, if the woman is particularly anxious about getting HIV or the couple's not feeling happy about just stopping using condoms because many couples who are in a zero different relationship where one is positive and one is negative they've been told and told and told so many times over the years that if you don't use condoms you're completely irresponsible that it creates quite a lot of anxiety when the provider then says no but you don't need to use condoms because you're trying to get pregnant and they're like hang on a minute you've, you've been told telling us, us to use condoms all this time for 10 years yeah. that we ha- even though we were in a stable relationship yes. and we were fairly confident that we didn't have other partners you've told us it would be basically immoral for us not to use condoms exactly and now you're saying nah forget about the condoms don't worry about it so if they're worried about leaving the condoms and it's creating a lot of anxiety sometimes it can even create sexual performance issues because of the anxiety then the lady could also go on prep which is pre-exposure prophylaxis and according to the current guidelines that's not necessary if the man is undetectable but if there's so much anxiety in the couple it can be a belt and braces approach Mm -hmm. so then the woman has control because she knows I'm going to take my prep every day and it's one tablet once a day so it's pretty easy uh, and straightforward to take and then that gives them a double layer of of protection if they still have anxiety then they could choose to do what's what's called timed condomless sex so they only drop the condoms when the woman's fertile Mm. That's quite tricky. I mean, I've learned from five years of working with couples that it is almost impossible to correctly identify the fertile period in women, especially if they don't have regular periods. So that's pretty much a whole conversation on its own. Um, And if the couple wanted to look at timing, then they could talk to their provider or they can go onto the internet and download an app which can help them. And two verified fertility tracking apps are DOT or cycle beads. And they've been well tested in across many, many different populations. So we know that they are reliable for tracking fertility. There's hundreds of apps out there, but Mm. I would recommend to people that they go for the ones that have been validated by research, which is DOT and cycle beads. And that would help them to limit the number of days that they miss the condoms in the month. Yeah, and so we'll, so we'll 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 tweet about those 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 apps and what it is that you want to have sex in the days that you're ovulating to to you know to increase the risk of of not risk increase the, <laughs> the chances <laughs> of you falling pregnant. And I'm happy that you brought up the issue of of how you know the the messaging that we sent out for 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 a long time that you must use a condom and there's no other sex you can have is making it difficult 
for people to accept this new message of ours of you equals you. Because yeah. we're saying to you guys, you don't have to use condoms anymore. And, and a lot of couples are like, mm, no, I'm not taking that risk. Yeah. So I think one of the problems is that we we called it unprotected sex, which mm. made it sound frivolous and irresponsible. Um, and now what you, the way that you could frame it is that you are having protected sex. It's just not the condom that's protecting you. It's the ARVs that are protecting you. So when I talk to couples who are trying for a baby and they're in a zero different relationship, I speak to them about having condomless sex, not mm. unprotected yeah, we don't, sex. Yeah, we don't use that. So that, that they that don't get terminology. They don't feel anxious about it um, and and ultimately I mean when I started safer conception work we weren't starting people on treatment until their CD4 was less than 200 there were all sorts of other issues so then people did need to use the other strategies like timing but now that we have U equals U I go straight to that if your partner is undetectable and is reliably taking their ARVs you can rely on U equals U and you can have sex like any other couple Enjoy your sex life. Have yeah. sex two to three times a week regularly when the woman's not on her period. And over six months, the average couple will get pregnant and there won't be an HIV risk involved. Mm. Okay, so we have an, an email from Anonymous and the email says, My husband was diagnosed with HIV in 2014 and last year his nurse told me that he has been on his treatment for over three years and the chances of contracting the virus are slim and we can start trying for babies. Is it possible for me to contract the virus or do I need to take PrEP while we're trying for a baby? And I think we've answered all of that. So I hope Anonymous is listening and I hope she, you know, she got her answer. Um, so... Sexual performance and condoms. So there are men, Natasha, and I know this from the work that I do, that the moment a condom comes out, the erection goes away. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, I used to think, no, these guys are being silly. They must stop being funny. But I now know that this is a real problem. Yes. So, so in, in, in at the Safer Conception Clinic, how do you work around that? Especially, let's say, in the first three months where the viral is not yet undetectable and they still want to be sexually active. How do you, how do you talk a couple through that so i mean i think it's it's just about listening to what the issue is is, mm. is it anxiety related um do they find condoms uncomfortable could they use a female condom instead which are hugely underutilized and wouldn't interfere with the guy's erection and his sense of arousal but they they could still have the protection or otherwise explaining to them you know what if you haven't been on treatment for long enough for your viral load to be suppressed you have to weigh up the risk and benefit of having sex without a condom and there is a real chance that you can transmit in those first few months when you're on ARVs and you're not yet undetectable because it takes time for the viral load to come down after you start treatment yeah, yeah. okay so back to STIs you mentioned STIs and I think it's a topic that that you know people are very interested in STIs in women and infertility which STIs are we speaking about specifically if you've just tuned in by the way you're listening to Sidebar Cindy and I'm chatting to Dr. Natasha Davies we're talking HIV and safer conception so which STIs are common in women and lead to infertility? So the most common ones that we worry about are your chlamydia, gonorrhea, and your trichomonas. Chlamydia is the one that's sort of famous for blocking tubes, that if you get an infection with that, it can lead to lots of pus and inflammation in the reproductive tract, and then your fallopian tubes can get blocked. Mm. And that's what leads to ectopic pregnancies in some cases, and in others, complete infertility, because when the egg is 
released during ovulation, they can't travel down the tubes to get to the uterus to, to form a pregnancy. Um, and one of the difficulties um, with, with all of those three infections is that for women, they are often asymptomatic. So that the woman the doesn't challenge. have yeah. any signs of it. Mm. So one of the big concerns around promoting condomless sex amongst couples because the viral load is undetectable is the argument but what about the other STIs mm. and it's definitely a valid argument you can't say that because someone is undetectable on ARVs they don't present a risk for other STIs so we're not saying when we're talking about safer conception that every couple should go out and say uh, it's fine most people are on treatment their viral loads are suppressed we don't need condoms anymore in South Africa that's definitely not what we're saying. There's a very high rate of STIs in South Africa. Many people don't realize it. And one of the other problems is that even if a woman does go and present to the clinic with a, a discharge or sores or burning urine or, or pain in her lower abdomen and she gets treated for STIs, very often the male partner doesn't come in for treatment and the woman just gets reinfected time and time again. We're not very good at reaching out to the male partner and saying you also need to come in. And I think one of the other things that people need to be aware of is that even if you're in a stable relationship and you know your partner is undetectable for HIV and you've been for an STI screen together, you've done everything right, there can be other partners in the background. Yeah. So in a stable relationship, I'll always say to people, if you're not using condoms in your stable relationship, please, if either of you have other partners, knowingly or unknowingly, you must use condoms with those other yeah. partners so you don't bring new STIs into the relationship. And I I think we just have to be honest with each other and acknowledge that many, many people do have more than one partner no judgment associated with it but that you adopt healthy sexual practices mm. so that your main relationship particularly if you're trying for a baby is safe and you're protecting because you're using condoms in the other relationship so what you really want is to you know if you're, so if you're in a relationship and you're in, in an open sexual network what you want is to protect your main partner and also the other yeah, partners the in your in your in your in your network, yeah. and this is where I think South Africa struggles in having open, honest discussions around that. That not everyone is in a in a monogamous um, sexual sexual situation, and the reality is that it's, you know it's it's not happening, and we need to talk about it. Okay, so let's talk about the see a different couple where the the male is negative and the and the female is positive. So it, it's a similar situation. If, if the female is positive and is on treatment and is undetectable, then that couple can go ahead and have sex without a condom. As long as they've screened for the STIs, I would always recommend a couple goes in together and gets screened. Um, and then, yeah, they just have sex as normal. They don't need to use condoms and they do it two or three times a week. And that should make sure that they hit whenever the woman is fertile because it's yeah. quite hard to tell uh, if there's anxiety on that side then HIV negative men will always benefit from getting circumcised but obviously it's important to remember to let the circumcision heal before that you then go to start trying yeah, and that healing and, process is six weeks yeah and um, the, the men can also use PrEP so PrEP is spoken about a lot in terms of adolescent girls and young women mm. and, and, I think, and sex workers as well yeah and uh, men have sex with men. men but I think one group that is hugely overlooked is heterosexual men who are at risk of HIV and we don't talk about it much and when you look at the PrEP studies the research studies
studies, there's they're an absent group. We don't even know how long it takes for PrEP to reach um, therapeutic levels in the mucosa of the glands. We mm. know about the anal mucosa and for men who have sex with men and we know about the vaginal mucosa for women. We haven't even looked at it for heterosexual men. And I'm so. like, hang on a second, but... That doesn't seem very fair. And then we wonder why men don't engage in healthcare. And we it's because don't care we just them. ignore them. We ignore them in research. We ignore them uh, in family planning. We ignore them in antenatal clinics. And of course, they don't feel welcome in the clinics. And if anything goes wrong, we're very good at blaming them. Yes, absolutely. We have very negative things to say about men. Okay, so we're back on Tidebout Cindy, and I'm still chatting to Dr. Natasha Davies about um, safer conception and HIV. So just now going into the work that natasha um does and i've worked at i worked at one of her, at the clinic that she she ran on safer conception in hilbra um the clinic has still has since closed down but um natasha you did phenomenal work there and basically you were offering a service where um serodiscordant serodifferent couples could come in say to you hi dr natasha we'd like to have a baby and you'd help them so whether there was infertility whatever it is that was going on you were able to help those couples have children so Tell me, tell tell us, tell us more about that that service. Um, yeah, so we set it up in 2015 in response to a realization that there was a need that there were couples who who really did want to try and have babies together, and it wasn't only for the zero different couples. Actually, the the zero concordant couples, so where both were positive, also came in because we we found that quite a few of them, one or both partners, might not be virally suppressed or might have other issues. So, um, as much as safer conception services are often promoted for zero different couples they can be useful for couples where both are living with HIV as well and we would just see them together or sometimes only an individual would come in sometimes it was a lady who found that she wasn't able to disclose to her partner but she wanted to make sure she was keeping him and her baby as safe as possible um, and we would chat through what their story was in terms of HIV any other health issues and teach them about the different methods that they could use to to get pregnant safely and to re reduce risks of partner or baby infection and it was an amazing clinic I, I loved working there so I still get photos of some of the babies who were born three years later and uh, the mums they just really appreciated having somewhere where there was support and where they could reduce their anxiety levels knowing that they were doing everything they could to have a baby who was free from HIV and I remember I was so honoured when you went on maternity leave and you asked me to come and work at your clinic for those few months because I mean I was like what Natasha wants me to work there but I, I know what it, I, I know what what it is that you're speaking about it's just having a provider who understands that you'd like to have a baby and is not judgmental about your HIV situation that is that is what is lacking in some in some some areas yeah, so I think there's still lots of evidence that providers who are working with people living with HIV don't even ask the question. So they, they're not in the habit of saying, are you thinking about having a child, which to me seems incredible since the majority of people living with HIV are in the reproductive age group. Exactly. So it should be a standard question. Do you have a partner? Do you have kids? Do they all know their status? Are you thinking of having more kids? And if the answer is, hell no, I'm done or not right now, then we should be offering 
using contraception. Exactly. Because more than 50% of pregnancies in South Africa are unplanned and unfortunately many of them are unwanted and we could prevent that. And then if they say, actually, yeah, I am thinking about having a child, then you can plan the process and that helps to reduce the risks as much as possible. Okay, so we have a call online, Tino. Um, we're taking a call from Charlene from the West End. Hi, Charlene, and thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Cindy, how are you? Good, thank you. Yes, hi, Dr. Davis. Hi. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, so, uh, basically, I just want to like kind of testify and um, to say that I agree with you, equal to you, that it actually works. Uh, so, I tested uh, HIV positive in 2008 when I met with my then-boyfriend. So we went to test, I tested uh, HIV positive and then he was negative. Um, and then we then joined, a, there was a certain study at some hospital uh, for uh, partners who one is negative and one is uh, positive. And then uh, in 2011, I had a, a, a son He was born HIV negative, he's still negative until now. My partner is still negative, I'm virally suppressed, taking my medication. So, yeah, I, I, I agree that you equals you, it does really work. It does really work. So I'd like to just uh, advise a lot of uh, people out there that uh, you equals you, it does really work. When the positive partner is taking their medication properly, when you're always virally suppressed, it does really work. Thank you so much for that, Charlene. And I'm happy that you're happy with you equals you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, I am definitely. Okay, so you've 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 had the sex, you're pregnant, you've delivered baby. Let's talk about infant feeding. Yeah, so as much as our information for women living with HIV during pregnancy has evolved, so has our breastfeeding advice. Mm. And U equals U stands true for breastfeeding as well. But I think one of the big challenges that we're seeing is that many women are are really good at taking their treatment during pregnancy because they understand that there's a risk of the baby getting infected when they give birth. So they want to be suppressed on the day they deliver. But after baby's born, things kind of slip. I mean, having a new baby is it's hectic. a lot of work. <laughs> you know. And, and trying to take medicines every day and deal with the new baby and keep up with clinic visits can yeah. be truly exhausting. So sometimes mums run out of medication. Sometimes they get postnatal depression. Sometimes there's intimate partner violence sometimes baby passes away there's so many different reasons why mums leave treatment in the postnatal period but if you're breastfeeding it's incredibly important not to do that because if your viral load goes up in your blood it will go up in your breast milk and then there's a risk that baby might get infected during breastfeeding and now in South Africa that's the most common time that we see babies getting infected we've pretty much sorted out in pregnancy transmission we're almost there with at birth transmission but our breastfeeding transmission is up well above 2 percent so 100 babies being breastfed by mums living with HIV two of them by the end of breastfeeding will have become positive who were born negative so which is sad so we rewind let's rewind back to August 2011 when the Department of Health made this the 20 declaration that moms were not going to receive free formula from the Department of Health any longer and they'd have to breastfeed and I remember I was one of the doctors that was really upset about this because I wanted 
it to be individualized. So if you're a mom that can stay at home for six months and breastfeed your baby, then it's fine. But if you can't, then you should get the formula. But we had this blanket approach and... Um, that, that's what happened. So we have a question, we have an SMS, and it says, when the baby is born HIV negative, how often should the baby have the PCR test done? So PCR is the test that we use for babies between the ages of 0 to 18 months. That's a, that's a standard test we use for babies that age. So how often should the test be done if the baby is born negative? Okay, so the, the guidelines change fairly frequently on this, so there's lots of confusion out there. But at the moment, as things currently stand at a government c- clinic, the baby would get their first test at birth. And that's to tell mum and the providers whether any infection happened during the pregnancy. The next test happens at 10 weeks of age, and that's to give us information about around the time of birth and late pregnancy and very early breastfeeding. And then the next one depends on whether the mum is breastfeeding or not. And this is the one that's most often missed and it really is incredibly important. So if a mum is breastfeeding, the very last time she gives baby any breast milk, she must count six weeks and take the baby to clinic for a third PCR test to show that no infection happened during the breastfeeding. And then there's a final test when baby is 18 months old, which is a rapid, it's a different type of test. So one thing that's confusing is that for mums who breastfeed for a long time, those tests might switch and you might get the rapid first at 18 months and then still need to test the baby if you stop breastfeeding at two years. But ultimately, babies who are breastfed and are exposed to HIV, they get four tests in their infancy. Yeah, and that's important because with all the, if all those four tests are, on, are negative, then we know for sure, for sure, that your child is HIV negative. But if you've skipped a test, like especially the exit test, then we'll still need to do it. So I still, I'll see a kid at five years and I'll ask the mom, did you do the 18 months test? And if you didn't do it, guess what? We're doing the test. We yeah. need to know for sure, for sure, that your baby is HIV negative. So there's a tweet from um, Poka Manyoko and he says, Hi, Dr. Cindy. I've had a pleasure of working with Dr. Natasha and Joburg Subdistrict F. We are supporting HTS with Q. She's very passionate about safer conception, very informed, and always available to support everyone with the latest updates and interesting journals. Thank you're, you. Yeah, you're, you're, a, you're a workaholic, Natasha, and <laughs> I think that's what I enjoy. That's what I enjoy about you. Um, so the other question, Natasha, is around um, delivery. Okay, so you're pregnant and you're going in to deliver. In the private sector, they tend to push moms towards C-section, but in the public sector, moms deliver naturally and c-section is only done if it's medically warranted and your comments on that um so i think it should be the woman's choice if she wants to elect to have a cesarean section in the private sector but in the public sector i completely agree with that approach there are so many women who have obstetrics so pregnancy related need for um elective which means you can plan it or emergency cesarean section that we cannot do it for 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 women living with hiv and there's no reason to because if you're virally suppressed then there is no chance of your baby getting infected around the time of natural delivery. And C-section also has negative uh, implications in terms of establishing breastfeeding, recovery, pain for mum, postnatal depression has an association. There are issues with having a C-section. So natural birth is a good way to go. Yeah, and, and, and a C-section, as, as, as Natasha said, must be reserved for, for, for medical emergencies. Um, and in, in terms of infant feeding, so I've reached a stage where um, a, a lot of moms are forced to breastfeed when they actually don't want to, and, but they feel guilty. So they do it, they're unhappy about doing it, but they feel guilty. What do you think about breastfeeding guilt with all the pressure 
you know, external pressure that like you must breastfeed your baby. You must be just, you know, what do you think about that? So, again, I think it's a woman's right to choose. There is evidence that breastfeeding is beneficial, and that's why South Africa goes with pushing the breastfeeding quite hard, um, particularly in resource-limited settings where the risk of diarrhea, pneumonia, malnutrition now outweighs the risk of, of transmitting HIV. Then, of course, we're going to encourage people to breastfeed. But in certain c circumstances, breastfeeding is not the right option for that mum. So from my experience, it's all always related to HIV. So a mum who's not virally suppressed, why would you push her into breastfeeding? If she's not able to keep her viral load down, don't put the baby at risk and don't put the mum under extra pressure of guilt that she might transmit to her baby. But in taking HIV out of it, even if you find breastfeeding difficult, if it's not pleasurable for you, if it's interrupting in your bonding with the kid because you don't enjoy it, then why push it? There's perfectly healthy other options available and I think we got to stop making mums feel guilty for every single choice they make there's enough to worry about okay and then the last thing that should be cool you know I could spend the whole evening chatting to you but we have to we have to go soon um infertility in in men what's the what's the protocol so say you know they've been having regular sex for six months there has been no baby we've checked the mom and she's she's fine what's the protocol for for males what do we do next Okay, so I think it's, it is great that you bring up the, the male infertility because I think often the women are the ones who the blame is placed with them and actually research shows that it's often equal or both uh, partners are, are having some fertility issues. So when it's suspected that the man may have an issue, the first step is a semen analysis. To, so to see whether the sperm count is sufficient, whether the sperm swim in the right direction and that sort of thing. And then just a, a simple examination to make sure that both testes are there and that everything functions normally. So for men, it's a pretty straightforward process, actually. You, you hand in some sperm and it gets put under a mic microscope I almost said microwave <laughs> microscope and uh, they check whether the sperm are swimming or not um, if that doesn't show up anything they may go further and do some hormone tests but it's it's less complicated than for women where there are a few different tests that you have to do to establish what's going on one thing that is important for people to realize is that it does take an average of six months for a couple to get pregnant if they're having regular sexual if they're having regular condomless sex and yeah. you'd be amazed how many couples say we've been trying for three years but they've been using condoms for three years so they're not going to have got pregnant so you need to understand the basics of how pregnancy works and then you need to have regular sex and then you start looking at maybe there's a problem if mm. the couple hasn't got pregnant after one year of trying so okay. a diagnosis of infertility is 12 months of regular condomless sex without contraception then we start thinking maybe there's an issue Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Natasha Davis. It's great having you in studio. Um, so tomorrow I'll be back and we'll be chatting about um, bipolar disorder because tomorrow, Sunday the 26th of May, is Bipolar Disorder Awareness Day. So I'll be in studio with, um, with a psychiatrist and we'll be chatting about bipolar mood disorder. I've had a great show. I think... Um, it was it was awesome for me to to just share this information with you because as I said we come from a dark past where women that were living with HIV were told that they couldn't have kids so I hope we've answered all your questions and if we haven't we'll carry on on Twitter on Sidebar with Cindy. 
Every Monday to Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.